0: Everybody in the room was saying, forget about the Kennedy assassination, forget about World War II. I mean, the POW, sure, but what what do you mean the Roswell debris?
1: Of America Audio with your host Tim Benall. Hello, out there, my friends. This is Tim Benal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio, Season Three. It is June sixteenth, two thousand eight, and this week we have a tremendous edition of BOA Audio for you. The first installment of a marathon conversation with Bill Burns, one of the stars of the History Channel's UFO Hunters, noted esoteric author and publisher of UFO Magazine. In this first half, we're going to have an extended bio background from Bill, where he takes us through his evolution in the world of esoterica, from his pre-paranormal days, to the serendipitous discovery of the Philip Corso Roswell story, to how he ended up at the helm of UFO Magazine, with lots and lots of little side roads explored along the way. Plus, in this week's episode, we're going to cover a number of areas related to UFO hunters, like how the show came about, Bill's reaction to the History Channel's vast marketing campaign that centers around him, aspects of how the show gets made, how much influence the network has on the content, and Bill's response to the critics, who say the show is not real ufology. Plus, of course, tons and tons more, so prepare yourself just to sit back, relax, and listen in as we probe the mind of someone who's literally at the top of the heap right now in the paranormal world, the venerable bill burns for those of you who are unfamiliar with bill burns let me give you a little bit of background on him william j burns is a new york times best-selling author a magazine publisher and a new york literary publishing agent who has written and edited over 25 books and encyclopedias in the fields of human behavior true crime current events history psychology business computing and the paranormal as publisher of the nationally distributed ufo magazine editor of the UFO Encyclopedia published by Pocket Books, and co-author with George Norrie of A Worker in the Light, Dr. Burns has added to his list of publications in the UFO paranormal field, which include The Day After Roswell, Unsolved UFO Mysteries, and The Haunting of the Presidents. He's been featured prominently on the History Channel program UFO Files, and is one of the stars of UFO Hunters, presently filming its second season. His website is www.ufomag.com, ufomag.com, check it out. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on May 16th, 2008. Bill Burns, part one of two, talking about UFO hunters and UFO magazine on BOA Audio, season three. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very special edition of the All of America Audio We have got a super A-list guest here for the program as we head towards the season finale. I'm very excited to have him on the program. He is one of the stars of the History Channel show UFO Hunters, which premiered this past January, and season two will be coming up soon. We're going to hear about that. And, of course, he's the author of a number of books, but two of them in the esoteric realm that you've probably heard of, The Day After Roswell, which was co-written, I believe, with Colonel Philip Corso. And Worker in the Light, which was co-written with our mutual friend, George Norrie. And he's also the publisher of UFO Magazine. So he's deeply entrenched in the world of esoterica and the UFO scene. And he's just got a myriad of uh, perspectives on things. And I'm dying to really pick his brain about so many aspects of the UFO phenomenon. He is, of course, the esteemed Bill Burns. It's great to have you here on Banal of America Audio, finally.
0: So thank you Tim. I appreciate it. Um glad to be glad to be on the show and um hope it's fun for everybody today.
1: I think it's gonna be a blast. Well let's start out with, you know, the obvious stuff, the bio, the background. Who is Bill Burns? And how did you end up gravitating towards the UFO phenomenon that you've become so synonymous with?
0: Well, what's um funny is um, um my background is really academic. Um academic in law for the most part. Um, <clears throat> I taught um, both uh graduate and undergraduate for uh at Trenton State College in New Jersey uh for um it seems like on, <laughs> too many years. Yeah. And then um, when I got involved in publishing, which is my other main background, got involved in publishing <clears throat> in the late, you know, right around 1980. I was working for a publisher, book producer for a while while I was teaching. And then um, shortly after that, um, I basically had a choice to make because they really wanted me to work there full time. And I think I'd gone pretty much as far as I could have gone in academia. Um, I was really too young to be um, that deeply involved in academia anyway, and I really wasn't didn't want to spend the rest of my life teaching. So um I I I left and and got into publishing and and have never left basically I've been I've been a publisher for about 25 years mm-hmm. and and a law school graduate and then um we moved to California in the 1990s And in 1990, and uh, around about 1993, I was doing true crime books and writing true crime books all the way back in the 80s. I did, I had, I had written the first serial book about serial killers with Joel Norris for Doubleday in '88, and the the book that brought me out to California was a book um, about. J Edgar Hoover's secret assassination squad that he ran from the 1940s all the way until the time he died in 19 in 1972 and I wrote that with a person who was a member of that assassination squad he used the name Mike Milan That wasn't his real name and it was called the squad and it was a pretty successful book back in the um, late 80s and then um, Steve Cannell's company um, that was doing a, a TV series called Wise Guy and the Rockford Files and those great shows back in the uh, 80s and 90s. He, he called me and said he wanted to do something with the squad. And we. he said, but you've got to come out to California to do it. He says, why don't you just do this? I know you're living in New York. You don't want to give up your great apartment, but I'll tell you what. Come out for six months. And if you don't like it, just go back. So uh, we did it, and by the time six months was up, we were in heated discussions with networks because it takes a long time to get shows um, started in um, Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So we were involved with talking to the networks, and we'd okay, so we'll stay for another six months, so what? Uh, by the time that was out, we'd found a really great house up in the Hollywood Hills that we loved, and who knew the earthquake would come uh, a couple years later and wipe it out? But, um, really great house. So we decided to stay, moved our stuff out, and before long we were basically, you know, cruising in Los Angeles. And, and I was going back to New York on a regular basis to deal with publishers, but we've really stayed here since. And, you know, by the time you start doing movies, TV movies, um, television is really shot, at least back in the 90s, mainly in Los Angeles. Now it's in New York as well. But um, in but back then it was all in LA, and that was right just coming up on the start of the reality shows in the late right around the year 2000, mm-hmm. when Mark Burnett's Survivor started,
2: yeah.
0: and uh, that started a whole new wave of industry. And um, in 93, 94. Uh, a motion picture company that I was working with. I was doing a a true crime um, series with them on really this fabulous guy called um, Gary Romer who was a special agent in Chicago who busted the whole um, Sam Giancana gang and everything else. Well, I was working with him to do a a, a television series and the same movie company had just contacted uh, Philip Corso who was testifying before Bob Dornan's uh, POW MIA committee. Robert Dornan was since defeated um, in Orange County when Orange County went Democratic, but he was like the head honcho, right-wing Republican, very pro-military, who was conducting hearings on the uh, POWs we left behind in Vietnam, which was a terrible scandal. And uh, and the cover-up. And this guy, Corso, was testifying on the POWs we left behind in Korea. Another scandal in World War II. And I was plugged into him and to Jim Sanders, who wrote the book, The Men We Left Behind, and Soldiers of Misfortune, and Dick Sauter, and people like that. There was a whole group, and George Knapp out in Las Vegas. And, um, of course, it was very interesting, because he told this great story. And then he he dropped the bomb about how he was working for Senator Richard Russell on the Warren Commission in 1964, and his investigation of the Warren Commission— and that really piqued everybody's interest in the room when we were talking to him, so I asked him how he had gone from um, being um at army r and d under Arthur Trudeau, who was a famous Korean War hero, but what interested me about most about Trudeau was uh, just a couple of things because I, I I knew a lot about that period in American history was one why Trudeau um, didn't get in trouble for Blowing the whistle on the fact that Alan Dulles's whole spy ring in West Germany uh, Had been penetrated Gale inspiring spy ring had been penetrated by the Stasi, the East German spy ring mm-hmm. and what did it mean about the CIA and Corso's, you know, he, his ears just pricked up. How did you know that? And I told him, well, you know, it was a big thing And then Corso told the story of how he was one of the colonels or lieutenant colonels working in the, on the National Security Council. Not He wasn't on the council. He was a military liaison for the staff. And how um, they'd gone to the Senate, Strom Thurmond, and everybody now was sitting up because it's a real piece of American history. And he said, you know what? If you guys punish Trudeau for telling the truth, we're going to um, block any future generals because the Senate's got to approve generals that are appointed by the president. Uh-huh. We're going to block any future um uh, 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 general appointments in the army, so we'll just have no more generals. And Eisenhower thought about it and basically gave Trudeau his third star, making him lieutenant general. Then put Trudeau in Army R and D, which was a backwater. I mean, I'm telling you, this thing was so b- had a budget of like five bucks, right? <laughs> had had there's nothing back in 1955. I mean, it was like a jerkwater command. It's like, this is where you go to lay your eggs and die, okay? Mm -hmm. And Trudeau turned it into this monolithic, this like mega powerful thing because Trudeau discovered something in the basement of the Pentagon, which was the Roswell debris. And we, at this point, Everybody in the room was saying, forget about the Kennedy assassination. Forget about World War II. I mean, the POWs, sure, but what, what do you mean the Roswell debris? And Corso told this phenomenal story. And I'm, I'm sitting there because I'm working on the POW story, but I knew about Roswell. We all did, obviously. And uh, this was 20 years after Stan began. And um, <clears throat> he tells the story of how... Trudeau, in 1956, discovered the Roswell Debris, but couldn't do anything with it because he didn't have any funding. So he goes to Strom Thurmond, his friend in the Senate, and he asks him for money to develop this Roswell file. And Strom Thurmond tells him the story of how they tried to do that in 1947, right, where Truman dispatched one of the members of general staff to um, go to find a company. So, of course, I wasn't the first person to do this, to find a company that was working on the lowest common denominator of the technology they retrieved from Roswell, which was the integrated circuit. And they brought it to, really, the only company really working in the area was Bell Labs at the time. And they brought it to Bell Labs, and they took it to Bretagne and Shockley, who saw this thing and realized, my God, we've been working on this since the 1930s. The point was to move modern electronics away from the old Edison tube, the radio tube, right, vacuum tube. And they saw this, and they realized that they'd been been working with a silicon base for this thing, but they couldn't get the electron flow right. So they saw this device from the craft at Roswell, and they said, this may be the answer. So they reverse-engineered the chemical formula, found that they used arsenic, they used arsenic, and that controlled the electron flow. And by 1949, 48, 49, and 50, Bell Labs had patents for the transistor. Well, the Army was livid. How dare you take the patent? What do you mean you're taking the patent? It came from outer space, from the Roswell crash. And Bell Labs said, "Don't be stupid. Do you really want to say that we're developing this device that came from the Roswell crash?" Yeah. And the Army was mad at Bell Labs. Bell Labs was mad at the Army. And then Britain and Shockley in the 1950s reverse-engineered their notes to show how their experiments brought them to the transistor. Now, they hadn't. It was faked. Yeah. But it was reverse-engineered. Um, so they got jump-started. So when Strom Thurmond told Trudeau that story and said, we've been at odds, so he said, you get these items invented in the United States. We want our military defense contractors to have these items under patent. We don't want anybody saying they come from outer space. Stupid. That was the idea. So Corso, in the the early 1960s, was – had just finished up as uh, Inspector General of the 7th Army in Germany, where he had previously held a a Nike Missile Battalion Command, where he developed – the way to detonate a Nike missile's nuclear warhead one mile up, which basically would wipe out Soviet tanks on the ground, which is the whole point shoot your missiles. And then, but, and Corso had the authority to obviously there were a whole set of codes, but he was one of very few field commanders to have nuclear weapons in his arsenal, frontline nukes. Huh. So, in other words, it's just to show you the, the credibility of this guy, the Army doesn't give nuts nukes. Yeah. Right? So we had frontline nukes and the whole point was, you know, forget the Soviet aircraft. I mean we'll shoot 'em I mean, that's not the point. The point is that uh, the East German and Soviet tanks that are rolling across the uh, the um the divide. And Corso's plan was to detonate these Nikes because supposedly there was an agreement we wouldn't have advanced nuclear missiles um at the front lines or they would. Corso had developed a way to turn his anti-aircraft missiles into advanced nuclear missiles. So, um, and he had them. So, from there he went to 7th Army Command as Inspector General, and finally he was wasting away his last year back in reserve in the Maryland National Guard. And that's what Trudeau was waiting for, snapped him up, gave him um, a, a deputy command position in the um, and Corso was, gen, uh, was a staff officer well, on general staff, so he had uh, the general staff tags uh, when he was working for Ike's, uh, in Ike's White House. He had the green tabs of command because he, he was a commander in his own right of a missile battalion. <clears throat> uh, he had all the requisites, so Trudeau made him the deputy <clears throat> director of Army R&D, which was a lieutenant colonel's position, and basically um, gave him 30 days at the foreign technology desk. Or he was kind of looking into how the Italians used – and the French used machine guns on their helicopters, things like that. And then basically in 30 days he went black, so he disappeared. And what he was doing was taking that Roswell debris, and he told us the story to military defense contractors. Well, this was 94, and we were like thrilled, and he walked us through the process. So right about 95, I had just completed a book with – the head of the Ted Bundy Task Force. Ted Bundy was still alive, he was in prison. His name was Bob Keppel, who was the chief criminal investigator for the state of Washington. And we'd just written the book called The River Man. It would take another ten, um, nine years for that book to become a movie. But anyway, that's that's what happened. We just finished the book, was coming out. And it was the first edition. Second edition came out in 2003. This was at Simon and Schuster. So I went to my editor at Simon and Schuster and said, "What do you think about um, the after this book about Roswell, and this Colonel?" Well, they were thrilled and they said, "You know what? It's 1995. We've got to have this book done in written, written by the end of '96. It gives you really just about a year." Yes. Yeah. And which is tough, and because we we must publish it in time for the Roswell. Fiftieth um, year uh, anniversary yeah. in 1997. So that's the sine qua non. Without that, you don't have anything. So um, that was the deal. And I basically dropped out of sight and worked with Corso for a solid year while his he his health was deteriorating. And we produced the book, in um, delivered it end of '96, and it was published in July of '97, June of '97, end of June. And uh, that was it, made the best uh, – I mean, Strom Thurmond had a, a basically his staff. He was, in, he was still alive in his 90s. Um, he – we went to Washington, of course so did, to show John Glenn, then Senator Glenn, mm-hmm. the uh, plans that Trudeau had developed in 1957 uh, for the Army's moon base. You to realize that the Army had plans to, 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 to fortify the moon, against you-know-who not the Russians Yeah, Um, all the way back in 57 that basically we couldn't do because of higher orders. It was a magnificent plan. It's in the back of Day After Roswell. We included it as an appendix. So Trudeau knew. He knew about he wanted to have I mean he really came up with the idea of the Star Wars defense system based on the moon against UFOs. I mean so this this goes back to the end of World War II and Corso was in the mix on that, he knew about it. So uh, that's why Trudeau wanted him, because Trudeau, would, because Corso had seen the, the Roswell debris at Fort Riley in 1947, when the army yanked off a piece of the, of the debris and um, and, the alien, and an alien body, because it wanted it, or um, autopsied at Walter Reed. And they yanked it up to go to Fort Riley, then to uh, Walter Reed, while the other main dispatch went from Fort Worth to Wright Field. Uh, The live ailing went to right field. So um, Corso was kind of in the loop, and we were thrilled. And Simon just gave us a contract and said, go ahead and do it. And he and I worked for a solid year, got the book out. And um, he was on the Art Bell show uh, the first night the book was out. And a week later, it was on the bestseller list, which stayed there throughout most of
2: 1997.
0: Wow! And uh, the New York Times bestseller list. It was another bestseller, too, but the New York Times is like the big mama, Mm -hmm. and it stayed there for most of the year. It wound up selling close to – it's still selling. I mean it's still in paperback. It's still selling. It sold close to a million copies and um, became a television documentary on the History Channel, which is how I got involved with the History Channel, which is the genesis of UFO Hunters. Since then, it's, uh, of course, a second book has come out in, in South America called Guerra Secreta. Hami Massan uh, translated it, and it's going to come out in the United States. And then um, that's going to be motion picture. And, um, of course, those other books, The American Who Ruled Rome, that's going to be, um, we're talking about that for a motion picture with the same company that's doing. Um, two movies that I had uh, two books that I have now better in development for movies nice so that's really so that's really what you know how I got involved uh, with the UFOs and then in 1997 the people who um, Vicki Ecker who founded UFO magazine along with Sherry Stark she and her husband uh, Don Ecker who was the news director we met in Roswell and Don had given the book a really great review and um they confided in me. They said, "Look, you're tied in with this. Obviously, they knew about the movie company deal that I had, and they said, "Look, I know you're working for this motion picture company. See, what I was doing before the day after Roswell was uh, there was a show on television called Soldier of Fortune Inc, mm-hmm. and I was the president of that publishing company, and so because that was a main job was publishing, even though I'd done movies of the week. Before I'd, I'd done some TV before that, nevertheless. Um, they wanted me to be head of the publishing company. So when the time came, um, I, I said, Look, the, um, I went back to the movie company and I said, uh, What do you think of your guys, you guys doing, taking you off a magazine over from the owners, getting into a deal to merge? Um, take it over and maybe just maybe if you can keep the your costs low on the magazine which is the secret and maybe it'll be a rights magnet for doing other movies well they thought the idea was great they bought the magazine and then they proceeded to over publish it in other words heavy stock shopping catalogs you know the kind of stuff yeah. you get from shopping catalogs. They really just shoveled money into it of course they never got it back got into deals with uh, distributors that really killed them, and they were just pumping money, and finally they said, we have to shut this thing down. So that's how I got involved with the magazine. And they made me the publisher emeritus, which really was just kind of an honorary thing. I could do my own stuff, but I was the publisher back in 98, and then finally in 2003, they said, we've we, we got to close this down. This is like a money hemorrhage. And I said, it's a shame because, A, you've got this liability to all – I said, you've got like three major liabilities. Your printing liability, your distributor liability because they were killing them because what distributors do is they'll distribute your magazines and they'll put you in all these – Pocket programs to get into bookstores because distribution for for books and magazines. You know, I got to tell you, it's the closest thing to payola that you can imagine. Yeah. I mean, if you want to get a great spot in a bookstore, fine, pay them. pay them for the spot. We'll sell you the spot, huh. Or else we'll stick you up on the third floor by the by uh, by, uh, by the bathrooms. Yeah. So um, they paid the distributors. I mean, I do some of that now. We'll get into pocket programs that are that are less costly and venues that I want to get into. I mean, you really learn a lot about distribution. And um, they paid, and they so they had this big liability to a distribution company where they owed money to them instead of getting money back from the magazines. Obviously, the printing company, which was, I mean, owing money to a printer is like like they drain your blood. So it was rough. Plus, they had a subscriber liability. They had these subscribers. They've got to deliver magazines or else we've got to give the money back. So um, we made a deal. I said, look, I- I'm not going to pay you for this magazine. I mean, the thing is, it's so much in the red right now. It looks like the red. It looks at like the Red Sea. <laughs> then the head of the company said, I will sell this thing for a buck. So I put a buck on his desk. Nice. And uh, it was like that fast. And, I, and he said, okay, fine. He'll, he'll negotiate with the printer and distributor. And take care of that nut you assume this liability which I said I would do work in with Vicky and Don so they're not out in the cold which I did and um, you know I'll give you the money that we get from new subscribers and you're on your own you know I'll, I'm kicking you off from the shore so he did and um, Nancy Burns who was the editor-in-chief uh just as a magazine guru. I mean, she was the one who at the beginning said they're going to kill themselves in this magazine. She basically took over the magazine basically because she, she's a New York editor. Mm-hmm. So um, she and Vicky began editing the magazine. Nancy handled production. And pretty quickly, Nancy brought the editorial standards up to a New York publishing level, which was what she does, getting good writers, which is important. So it sells a magazine and we began getting ads and the first thing we did was immediately cut the paper cost i mean paper is just ridiculous we cut the paper cost took it out of all color which you didn't need all color for some of the articles it's pointless yeah um brought it to a reasonable size and we were kind of breaking even in two months nice and um by the middle of two thousand and four we were ju- i mean literally without taking salaries, we were just just like totally in the black. I mean just but by, by a smidge. Yeah. But nevertheless we we're able to do it and even though we had some rocky times, you know, like last year our distributor came back and said you owe us seven thousand dollars and we had to work that out. But gradually we turned it around to the and of course UFO hundreds has helped considerably. But um to the point where um you know, the magazine is viable. Nice. And the question is now we're going now we're going um audio. Uh, in the latter part of 2008. We're going to be doing audio distribution of articles. Like we're going to be doing uh, converting text to talk. And so you can really be able to play UFO Magazine on your uh, iPhones, Blackberries, iPods, wow, MP3s, nice. yeah. And uh, we're going to be getting into um, kind of a video podcast, which will be part of the subscription. So, you know, that that's the kind of stuff we'll be doing. Um, kind of toward the end of 2008, and we've just been approached by a lot of electronic game companies, which, you know, we've put off for a while because I'd rather be doing what I'm doing now, which is television and movies, mm-hmm. than uh, than games, and so um, so there are big things in the works for UFO Magazine. We're sponsoring with Jeremy Vaney. We, we co-sponsor Culture of Contact and we're going to be doing other events as well with Roger Lear and a few other people. So um, basically we're staying really in kind of the nexus nucleus of the field, even though one of the things we've done is kind of expand the breadth of UFO magazine, getting in different kinds of writers. We've gotten heavily criticized for some of it, I mean really heavily criticized by, by some of the old guard for having people like um, you know, New Agers, but you know what, my thought is New Age is just, is going to be old age pretty soon, so it's really yeah, not going to matter. Exactly, you know. And then you look at a book, and then you look at a book like Andy Baciago's book about the um, uh, the fatima sighting in Portugal, and his big. His big argument is these are these are UFOs, dudes. I mean these these are not you know UFOs, and there's not much of a difference between what people perceive. You know, in the Middle Ages they called them angels. Now we call them light beings, entities. I mean you know what? It's human experience, and and you know unless you can basically capture one of these things, stick it on a table, uh, you know get some blood and find out that uh, that the blood is purple, you really don't know what it is. So don't start making judgments about things you just don't know. Everybody's got his own judgment. You know? Mm-hmm. Abraham saw the angel Godzilla. Um somebody else sees the angel and says it's really a UFO being. You know what? It's really all perception anyway. It's all subjective. If you follow Heisenberg's theory basically that you really don't know anything. You know, it is what you see. Then everybody perceives something and it's totally different or exactly the same. It doesn't matter it's what you perceive.
3: There you right. Know.
0: It's everything is uncertain, Heisenberg said. If it's a wave, it's a wave. If you want a particle, it's a particle. And since um, there's non-locality in the universe where different particles spin reciprocally to other particles, so that you could have a gazillion particles spinning the same way based on what you see a wave with a particle. There you go. You see what you want to see and you draw to you what you want to drew, uh, draw as the law of attraction. So everybody is his own little entity and unless you all live in a hive, you're going to, see, like the Borg, you're going to think the exact, oh, you're going to see things differently. And so that's really the tack that I took uh, with the magazine and that's the tack Nancy took in, in, in editing the magazine and she went out to find writers that provide diversity, and that was the big thing, getting diversity in the magazine. The magazine back in the early 90s was simply kind of like a monolithic single thought, And one of the things Nancy wanted to do was basically turn the magazine into a diverse magazine, different points of view, give people a real literary experience so that you read one writer, you're getting one view. Reading another writer, you're getting another view. Mm -hmm. And that's what she wanted to do, and and, and so that's how the magazine has evolved uh, since 2004 when um, she became the editor.
1: There you go. All right, wow, that's quite a bio background. <laughs> well, let me jump in here and just ask. So when you first met Corso, that was pretty much like your introduction to the UFO world. I mean, I'm sure you probably had some side interests, but that was really when you sort of dove that in. Was the
0: main, Yeah, That was the main introduction to it was really Corso. And, um, and, again, Corso wasn't the issue. Corso wasn't the issue from the UFO perspective. He was the issue from really doing two kinds of history. One is we were trying to sell a movie on uh, POWs. And uh we had some phenomenal stories about POWs, including a lot of stuff about John McCain and what he did. That's why I'm a big John McCain fan, not because I'm a radical conservative, but because of what the guy did in Vietnam. You know, you know, when you have somebody who can stand that kind of fire, right, standing fire was the big thing. You know what they used to do in the British Navy with um young midshipmen? And these are kids, by the way, that would come into the Navy at 13, 14 years old, right? Right. Um, they would set up a fake pistol duel with these kids, yeah. and I mean, they wouldn't shoot the kids, but they would, you know, they would challenge them, some older guy. And here's how they made the cut: if that 14-year-old kid could stand there with a pistol in his hand, knowing he was going to get shot and do it bravely, because it was a matter of honor, they said, "Fine, you will, you can stand fire." The kids who, who basically ran away were the kids that that they drummed out of the navy because because but it was standing fire well you know what when you when we were doing the POW um, stories McCain stood fire I mean basically this was a guy who Well, anyway he was one of the stories we did but there were a few others Uh, uh, people who escaped and were recaptured and basically tortured until their bodies were broken I mean unbelievable stories. of course I told some of these stories about Korea as well what they did to the people in Korea well so that was the point of dealing with Corso when he told this other story about something he did in World War II, um, which actually in part was one of the stories that became the Leon Uris book Exodus. And later became obviously part of the Paul Newman movie, but it was how Corso in Rome, when he was the adjutant in Rome, basically he was the com- he was the commander of the civilian of the CIC in Rome, mm-hmm. the Counterintelligence Corps, and he was dealing with the Italian partisans, the communist, you know, the NKVD units from Soviet Union, um, Mussolini's old partisan groups, and of course. Uh, basically um, the Gestapo were still operating in Rome and um, he basically was dealing with all of them and he was kind of at the center and that was the book that believe it or not we were doing the POW movie but I really wanted to do that book on it's called the American who ruled Rome yeah because at the center of that book he was dealing with the um, with uh, the organized crime families from the US from Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano um, in freeing this group of um, displaced persons Obviously, they were um, Jews who had been in concentration camps, who were being kept in a displaced persons camp north of Rome. And um, uh, Menachem Begin, who was then in the uh, Stern gang, had set off a bomb in that camp because, and then the elders of that community told them they were being repatriated to the Soviet Union, into Poland, into the countries that were going to be communist. Hated communists. I mean, that, you know, they were right about his being a right-wing guy. He was a totally anti-communist because he fought them in, 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 in um, the end of the war, mm-hmm. and he basically went off the wall and found out that it was our own OSS, Angleton who was in the OSS, who was in in Rome in the 40s, uh, in 45 through 47, was dealing with the NKVD units. He said this is crazy, and they were saying to Corso, nope, there are allies, you've got it, and Corso basically with Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky in the U.S. providing the dough, and there was a lot of dough. They bought a ship, they floated the ship into the harbor down, down the hill from Rome. Corso's own CIC units guarded the way. Luciano paid for um like bathrooms and rest facilities and they marched thousands of Jews out of this camp onto a ship, floated the ship across the Mediterranean into Palestine, where they were repatriated. The British wanted Corso's head. They wanted him hung. And you know what? Ike saved him. Ike said, "Get the hell out of Rome, get out of dodge you go to Fort Riley, and hence the UFO stuff started. So, so that was my first contact with Corso, not for the UFO deal, but for this World War II and POW deal. It was only when Corso dropped this bomb about the Roswell debris that it basically, somebody that high up <clears throat> confirming Jesse Marcel. Yeah. So here's Jesse Marcel describing debris. Here's Corso describing the exact same debris that This was Major Marcel, and his son, Jess Jr., described. And I'm saying, so now you've got this three-way... I mean, Jesse and his father saw it at the same point. But here you are, 40 or so years later, and here is Corso describing the same debris. That was great.
1: And so that's pretty much what opened your eyes to the whole UFO scene. It
0: sure did. And, And the point was that Corso said he saw this in 1961 before, ten, really, 18 years before a Major Marceau went public with Stan Friedman on the air.
1: Yeah, and what did you think of the whole UFO scene as you got more into it? Because I'm sure you were kind of like an outsider to the whole scene at first, and then you get into it, and, you know, you're doing the Corso book, and, of course, everybody come out of the woodwork to, you know, to try and speak against it. You know, obviously there was a big firestorm about Corso. What did you think as you got into this whole scene? Well, before?
0: first of all, here's where, you know, your hands are kind of tied. Corso didn't come to us. He didn't come to us um, without uh, without having been vetted. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Okay. So there's a whole so the Corso story, and this is what some of it I'm telling, but I'm telling it really only as I can get people not to be in trouble. Mm -hmm. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, I just knew and still know an awful lot more about that than has ever been in print. So part of the issue is that Corso came heavily vetted by NSA people. So this is not some—this was not, as a lot of people said, some old guy thinking he's going to have a payday. We had NSA people. We had a station chief from the CIA. You no, know, fine. His name was Chip Beck. I can tell you that because <clears throat> he's retired and he doesn't care. Yeah. He was the youngest station chief in CIA history. I mean, these guys were vetting Corso. I mean Chip Beck was actually at the hearings with Corso and this ex Czech Colonel Golanowski about POWs and Chip Beck gave him the uh gave him the three ring sign if you know what I mean. Uh-huh. So, um, yeah, and Chip and I had become friends. In fact Chip was in my documentary on Corso on History Channel. And here's this guy, Chip Beck, basically goes back to Iraq. And this guy's like my age, right? So he's 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 getting along. Goes back to Iraq to advise groups and do some community work for the State Department. Guy walks in, kind of like Kevin Randall. You walk in, and you see these troops are totally untrained. Chip sees a trench that they're digging a straight line. He says, "Guys." Don't you even know? And Chip fought in the secret war in Vietnam, which was Vietnam after the Paris Peace Accords, mm-hmm. back in seventy-four, seventy-five, right before they invaded. So there was a war going on still. And um, <clears throat> he sees he says, "You do a trench like you do a zigzag. You don't do a this isn't World War One." So this captain throws him out. What do you know? Chip goes, "I was a Navy frogman, dude. That's what I know." Okay. And um, you know, so so he vets him. There are other people who vetted Corso who were straight out of the National Security Agency. Yes. Yeah. Right? Engineers. Folks who actually knew about reverse engineering. I'm telling you, they knew it cold. They vetted him. And that was the scary part. Because these were, some of these were not good guys. Okay? These were guys who, you know, they, scary, yeah. right? Where they were into. I mean, this one person told us of weapons. And devices and this is true stuff that they come out of a science fiction movie okay I could tell you I could tell you this much that the Star Trek uh uh, uh that you know like beam me up Scotty mm-hmm. we have a beam up device that this guy was in and he said that he said he tried to flee after that experience sure. Because it so challenged his um, reality. Wow. And they said, you're only leaving this place one way. I mean. Jesus. Right? Yeah. And it's not a way you're going to like. <laughs> yeah, in the bag. So, so, so um, he basically, I mean, he eventually, they eventually let him retire. But he's retired like with, he goes on a cell phone that's monitored. And I know they can do that because mm-hmm. of the experience we had when we were shooting the first episode of UFO Hunters. We're in Las Vegas. And if you know there is, if you follow the magazine, you know we did this uh, cover last year for this guy Colonel X, yeah, big flap, who said there was um, a a reverse-engineered UFO hovering ten miles up over over um, the mountains north of Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. So we dealt with him, and he dealt with Stephen Greer's group and Ted Loader and Raven Star. He had gotten no response from them. And so he wrote us, and I said, fine, you know, we'll print your story. We get this grief from Stephen Greer's group. How dare you? It's like, how <laughs> dare you disclose a UFO truth? But you're in Project Disclosure, but we can't disclose. Only you can disclose. Okay, fine. I mean, I'm telling you, this is unbelievable, right?
1: That's ufology for you.
0: That's ufology. So this, so this is why I keep writing about the non-science of ufology, because it's like insane. Yeah. So um, and that's why people laugh at us. So they're mad at us. Anyway... We print the story. So then UFO Hunters goes out to Vegas. Well it turns out that it wasn't just Colonel X who's seen this. Everybody's seeing this. It's like this low hanging star over the Las Vegas Strip. Jim Sanders, another like luminary in the in the conspiracy field, who wrote the book The Downing of T W A Flight Eight Hundred mm-hmm. for Kensington. He and I did that book back in ninety seven. Um, he he sees this thing. Set up shop at Jim's house. We see this thing. Go, okay, gotta go to the mountains. Go up to the mountains. We set up shop with a heavy-duty telescope and 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 um, CCD camera, digital camera up there. We actually capture this. We are blown away. We've got this built-in computer star map. Right, this is on camera, by the way. Yeah. Built-in computer star map. We actually map the area, and there's no star, no planet. And we're seeing, of course, it's so clear up in those mountains, cold too, but really clear, Yeah, you could see everything. So we're seeing satellites shoot by. You could always tell a satellite, by the way, because they move very quickly through the sky. It's not like they're a star. It's not like it's Venus, and it just moves slowly over the, up across the sky. You could see these things, right? And we have our satellite catalog, so we know certain satellites, right? And you see these things up there, the ones that are not in geosynchronous. And they're moving. And you'll see shooting stars all over the place, which is a great sight. But you'll just see them, right? And this is October, so you're still getting the, the end of, of uh, some of the shooting star shows. And there's this one thing that is bright as bright can be. So we, do a, um, um, we take a picture of it. We, we, we get it on video. And it's more of a platform than anything else. So I get so excited I run inside – it's really cold. I run inside <laughs> the um, – this like inn where we're set up on the terrace, mm-hmm. and I text I, – uh, SMS Nancy. Yeah. I, I text message her on my BlackBerry just to get – to tell her this is great news. And when I – after I hit send, the lights on this thing flicker, and it seems to drop out of the sky. Wow. Well – I come back out, and we, again, this is on camera. This, we never aired this. Um, it was on camera, and they and the guys are screaming. they turned it off. They turned it what's going on? Well, you know, well, I, Yeah. sure enough. So I call one of the people who vetted Corso, and I go, "What is this?" So he says, "You idiots <laughs> just managed to hunt." For one of our most secret surveillance platforms that the NSA runs. You effing morons. What did you do? So you then text a message. Don't you know that thing is picking up every single message and scrubbing it? So they got your email, they got your text message. Now they're going to have some fun with you because we go back to Sanders' house and he says it's gone. And then as we pull out of the driveway, he phones and says the thing is back up again. He says, that thing can read your license plates. They knew you were coming from the start. Wow. So that's a technology we have. And he said, what do you think is hanging over downtown Baghdad? He said, those, he said, those jihadists can't even take a piss that we don't know about. Yeah. And then one of the people that Corso had plugged us into was, I don't know if you know what the NSA intercepts are. Vaguely. Okay, well. Even as far back as the Vietnam War, the NSA was flying intercepts. Now, the NSA is not military. Mm -hmm. They hire military people. They were flying intercepts over Vietnam. And they were flying intercepts over Vietnam because they were scrubbing everything. This is where we have the technology. They were scrubbing everything that came out of the North Vietnamese, the VC, the Chinese, and the Russians. Yeah. Right? So we knew, Corso said, all the way back in the early 60s what they were doing. So once in a while, they would the, the, the NSA would see a group of either VC or North Vietnamese marching captured POWs uh, to the camps. Mm-hmm. and But they couldn't tell the field commanders in Vietnam what they knew Because that would tip off the Vietnamese to what we could see. So they actually had to let our guys get captured and incarcerated. And then go through channels, which would sometimes take weeks, before we would know about a uh, a POW that was picked up. And it was frustrating to the guys Well, on one of these missions. This NSA intercept guy saw a UFO. It was following his plane. And this is NSA now. We're not talking about some guy who was, um, you know, on the ground seeing a UFO. You don't know what the hell you saw,
3: right? Yeah, I yeah. mean, you
0: see a light, you don't know what it is. This is a guy who's the UFO following his plane. You now, get this: he transmits to the Russians and the Chinese, who know he's there. By the way, they're not going to shoot him. He's not going to shoot them. Yeah. He transmits to them the quote UFO code. Unquote. So they know not to shoot at the damn thing. Huh. Now that's something.
1: Now, what you're saying is that there was a code between the countries uh, to alert them and that sort of thing. Correct. Interesting.
0: Very interesting.
1: Yeah, that's bizarre.
0: So, uh, anyway, those are the kinds of people who talk to me about Corso. There you go. All right.
1: Next question. What, Chuck? I'm sitting here watching the press conference. Nice suit. Thank you, Chuck. I'm busy right now. I need some socks. I need them for my footsies. About six to ten pairs. Chuck, I gotta go. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Hey, 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 hey. Give me them socks. And um, just how frustrating is it for you to sort of have to be the defender of Corso now that he's not around anymore and the people are always, it's, it's like a never-ending debate, you know. It's always going on about the veracity of Corso's story, and it seems like you kind of got stuck with the bag because you co-wrote the book, that you have to, you know, go to bat for the Corso story every time, you know, you're on a show like this or, or somebody asks you about it or, or any time, do you know what I mean? Well,
0: first of all, I mean, it's not that frustrating. I mean, it was frustrating at the time because of everything that – I mean, there's a whole story called The Day After Corso. I mean, there's a whole story at the time because of what happens, what happens in Hollywood. Remember, so much of this is tied up with the whole Hollywood mystique mm-hmm. that you just go crazy. I mean, and it, it, it starts really the day the book is published because um, we're in Las Vegas, not Las Vegas, in Roswell. And, of course, we hook up with Whitley Strieber and Linda Moulton Howe. Whitley's a, a gentleman, and he and I are friends. We have the same editor at Macmillan, Tor Forge, same editor. Um, and um, so, anyway, we're, uh, we're friends. And I introduce Corsair to Whitley, and they get to be friends. But um, Linda Moulton Howe is there, and she's setting up for the Art Bell Show. Well, there was a real issue with um, uh, Corso's son. Really, did not take a liking to Linda, and one of the reasons was he was really afraid that I mean, he was protecting his father, um, and and he was, and the guy and the man was sick, and she was afraid he was going to go out and really cut him up. And we knew there were mistakes in the manuscript. I mean, so when people scream, "Oh, you made a mistake! You should be drawn and quartered!" You know, you say, "Look." Uh, people make mistakes. I made mistakes, and I still do in manuscripts. And you clear them up in subsequent editions. It's kind of like when you release software, right? Yeah. You release version one, and then you know there are bugs in it, and you alert people to various bugs that you don't discover until after the software is in production. You apologize. It's not your intent to release buggy software, but but you do. Yeah. Okay. And I, I defy someone to release bug-free software. Exactly. Even Apple. You know. You see, Apple releases a system five. Um, OX point uh, five something, and the thing is full of bugs, and then through the ensuing weeks, you will download patches as you go. Well, this is the same thing with a lot of books. There were, there were a lot of mistakes. Is it a bear bomber? Is it a something else bomber? I don't know. I forget the mistakes. But anyway, um, somebody was in London when he was really in the United States. Wisner, I think, was the person's name. Mm-hmm. So, um, And the point is that what Corso was going to do, because we were under this crushing deadline, was to release a bunch of errata, and then basically in... The second printing, make those corrections. Because you can do that as long as you're not printing covers. You can make corrections and just run new plates. That's not that expensive in, in, in real publishing. Yeah. Covers are expensive. Yeah, and if you make the errata, if you produce it so you're only replacing certain pages, then you're not um, having to redo every single plate. I mean, it's it's part of the process. Yeah. So um, in this case, we're going to do it. Well, the sun really got angry at, at Linda Moulton Howe, because she comes in with this loose leaf book with all the book copied with like notes and highlighters and stuff and I said <laughs> she's a reporter I said that uh, that's part of the process I said we'll both be there don't worry about it yeah you know we'll, we'll do it I mean you know they can't it's not that we're bulletproof it's that you basically deal with deal with the questions as they come up well he doesn't want him to go on the air and I said your father has got to go on the air with her because the Art Bell show is really important, and I said, I'm, I'm working for the publisher as well, uh, as well as the movie company. And this is, this is real, as well as for the book, because I was the co-author. I said, it's very important. So we actually have to get into a room, lock the door, so that Linda can do the interview, and the book hits the bestseller list. Well, so then Linda, shortly thereafter, um, Corso has a falling out with the movie company. Not especially with me, although I was drawn into the lawsuit mm-hmm. but with the movie company. So the movie company and Corso are, are, are get into litigation. It was dumb litigation, it was ego-driven and lawyer driven, not really driven by rational minds. Even one of the lawyers who later took over said this was an insane case because it cost so much money, wound up really hurting Corso, but at the end of the day there was this monster, monster litigation. It was far bigger than the book warranted. And in the process Corso was so frustrated that he had a number of meetings with Linda Howe and gave her part of his manuscript. Well, the son, who at some point came back over to my side and realized this was crazy, um, he gets the material back from Linda Moulton Howe, who then blames me. And so ever since, like, 98... There's been this war on with the magazine, because somehow you know i'm I'm the person who was the bad guy, and I never was um who was involved, and so that was part of the whole frustrating thing about it. The other was that when um, I introduced Corso or actually Nancy, my wife introduced Corso to Paula Harris, yeah. She was all the way back in Roswell, jumping up and down. Hello, hello! Nobody would even give her a second look. Ned said, "Who are you?" She said, "Oh, I'm from Italy. I want come on." So she brings her and Phil and my wife were great friends. I mean, they really were good friends. Mm-hmm. And um, so she brings Paula Harris over to Phil, and, and they begin speaking Italian, and they struck up a friendship. Well, during the, the, the time when Corso went to Rome, he gave her a bunch of materials. What does Paula Harris do? She gives them to this guy, Biana. and he, they decide to do an Italian translation of the day after Roswell. Yeah, so nobody reads the copyright notice. I mean, I'm I, 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 I'm staggered that they actually are coming up with their own Italian translation. So I go to the legal department at Simon and Schuster. Again, you know, I'm a law school graduate here, so I, as well as a literary agent in New York, so I go to the department and I say, Hey, there's a a, a rogue edition of the Italian uh, translation yeah. coming out of Italy. They send them a litigation letter. You know, it's basically Zeus throwing a lightning bolt. And they have to stop it. From that point on, she's been an enemy. And I'm saying you tried to pirate a copyright. You don't do that under the International Copyright Convention. Oh, he gave us the manuscript, but he didn't give you the underlying rights to the manuscript. He only gave you the physical copies that he made. That doesn't mean he conveyed you any copyright, which, by the way, he didn't – although he owns it – He's under license to a publisher who controls the international publication. It still has copyright, but he can't convey any rights to publish to you. They're two different things. Get a lawyer, you idiot. <laughs> and sorry. so um since that time, then they pirate another edition. They get into a deal with this one lawyer and who never conveys them copyright, and they then re-copyright um, uh, uh I forget the name of the book that, I forget the name of the book I have it in my bookshelf, but it 's basically dawn of a new age they They basically copyright that in the name of the publisher, so this guy Bayada has has you know copyrights in the name of the publisher, never pays any money to to uh, to the Corso estate, and they're basically thumbing their noses at us yeah so what I do is I get the lawyer uh I find out that um I mean, see, here's the frustration, right? So you find out that, that this guy's going to be at the Laughlin Conference. Well, the Laughlin Conference is run by the Browns. And the Browns have this nasty habit of not paying for the ads that we've run. And they come up with all kinds of excuses. And finally, the whole thing is, you know, I'm not going to pursue them all, um, at all. But they come up with all these excuses. Uh, it's our fault. It's their fault. And I'm telling you, working with them is like a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I have fun. is going to be at the conference. And... um we get uh, a process server in because you, you, you we can't serve him in Italy. It's got to be heard in the U.S. in federal court that they've infringed on copyright uh, because that's what the, the U.S. Copyright Act allows us to do. So we find that he's going to be there, and we have a process server waiting outside the door. And this is on video, by the way. Um, it's on YouTube. It's, it actually is really quite funny because it wasn't me. It was the it was the lawyer and the and and the son. I really wasn't involved in the lawsuit. Um, they. The guy says, are you Maurizio Pagalli? He says, yeah. Hits him with the lawsuit. So it's, he's tagged in the United States, which means he's got to respond to a United States federal court in the Ninth District, which is in California. And um, <clears throat> suddenly he's sued. So he stands there. He's going to give this talk about Corso, right, and his book, which he copyrighted in, in the name of the publisher, which is illegal. And um, so, so what happens is, he does this, and, and 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 he sued. So this is on video. So that's the stuff that's frustrating. It, it's it's if you're going to get blamed for stuff, at least get blamed for stuff you did, not stuff you didn't do.
1: That's interesting. See, it's fascinating to hear some of these, uh, you know, the intrigue that goes on on the ground here. Um, oh
0: my God! I mean, I can world. tell you. Of course, I was so frustrated that he actually went to. They actually went to uh, again to Nevada to be on the Art Bell Show. He was in Pahrump, I think, where he met the representatives for the actor, Steven Seagal. And he told the actor Stephen Steven Seagal that he had the, the movie right. So they start signing up a whole movie, and they call me to tell Simon & Schuster basically to sign the publisher's release for the movie. Well, we're already doing a movie.
1: Yeah. Now let's talk about UFO hunters, because that's kind of like your big dog right now, and that's mm-hmm. what you're most associated with. Right. right. Just to start it out, how did the show even come about in the first place? Because it seemed like there hadn't been too many UFO shows in the last few years, except for UFO Files.
0: um, And that's how it started, Mm -hmm. basically, UFO Files, because I was on UFO Files a lot. And it actually started all the way back. I've got another company called Filament Books. Yeah. Plug, plug, plug. Filament Books is an electronic (laughs) book publishing company that is uh, in California, and, uh, we published books in an electronic format with our own reader. And one of the books we published was a book by Paul Stonehill and Phil Mantle called, um, UFO USSR.
1: Yeah, it's a great book.
0: Great book. The, uh, motion picture production company in, uh, Santa Monica called, uh, Waltz O'Malley. Waltz O'Malley wanted to do, uh, was doing, uh, a UFO file. This is how I met them, uh, on Soviet UFOs. Yeah. Right, Kapustin Yar, and the various places in the Soviet Union, and they had the Khrushchev son was on the show, and so they wanted the Stonehill book, and I said no. I said, I'm the publisher. I've got to release it. I'm not going to do it. Um, and I told Paul, I said, if they're not going to pay you to do, that, to do it, then, um, you know, it's, you know I, I was, you know, being kind of like a – I was being an idiot, <laughs> Um, tell you the truth, because um, I had this publishing company and because I could see no, I did see no. So, but apparently, the head of the company was good friends with my distributor for UFO Magazine who's actually a jazz musician. So what he did was he called me up and said, listen, you know, the guy's a friend. He, he's not a bad guy. Uh, what I want you to do, please, as a personal favor to me, will you let your author go on the show? I said, okay, fine. I left, I'll let the author go on the show. Mm-hmm. So um, I basically called the guy and said, yeah, I'll go ahead and do it. You know, you you're friends with my distributor. Fine. So then um, we're talking, and so then he says, well, you're the guy who wrote Day After Roswell, right? And he says, and then you're the guy, I mean, wasn't Day After Roswell on the History Channel? Uh, didn't you produce that? I said, yes, I did. So he said, and you were on it? And I said, yeah. So he says, could we interview you? He said, do you know about UFOs in the USSR. I said, yes, I do. And he says, well, could we interview you as as UFO magazine publisher? I said, sure, fine, you know, for a, like two hours, for a morning. So they came down to where I live, and I live right on the water. And um, so they loved the scene with the boats passing behind me and the flags. And I, they said, could you... Um, uh, you know, and they said, could you sit here? So I did, and I said, you know, the problem is I'm going to be squinting because of the sun. I said, so I'll either have to wear sunglasses and a hat, or, um, we have to go inside, or you've got to flip it. And they said, no, 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 we, we like the water behind you. Try it with the sunglasses. And I did. And so what they did was they're in communication, obviously, with the History Channel immediately on the internet. Yeah. So, uh, they, they took a digital still. And they said, well, this work, and they, um, they basically sent it to um, the History Channel to, to their producer, uh, who became the producer of the UFO, of, uh, UFO Hunters, and um, she said, uh, I like it. I like the look. Keep it. And so we did a whole interview for most of the afternoon, most of the morning and through the afternoon, on UFO's USSR. And so that was one of their highest-rated shows in the History Channel. So they came back to me to do undersea UFOs, and they came back to me to do black box UFOs. They came back to me to be to do a whole bunch of shows. And they wanted to do another undersea red alert UFOs. And at that time, I was taking a concept for UFO road trip. And again, this was Nancy's idea. Pat Uskert, who's one of the hunters, had written to Nancy about a UFO sighting he had in Venice and he showed her the pictures and she was a cover story in the magazine
2: mm-hmm.
0: back in two thousand and four. So um she hired Pat as one of the writers and Pat was doing the uh, UFO reports and then she hired him to be subscription manager of the magazine and they became friends and um and he's a good guy, the redheaded guy in the show with the with the shaggy hair. Yep. And so um so he he um he began writing for the magazine and he was saying, you know, he was showing her the videos that he took because she had said, Why don't you interview some other people? And he'd work with David Sarita
3: yeah.
0: on uh, David Sarita's first thing with Danny Ackward. In fact, it was Sarita who followed, tell you the truth, Sarita was following Pat around to take videos that Pat was taking. <laughs> Pat was getting a little upset about that. And um, he interviewed Mark Olson up in Sonoma and a few other people. So um, then when David's video came out, and he was saying, oh, it didn't make any money, and so – but the best stuff in the video was stuff that Pat shot. Yeah, He's a, he's, uh, he, uh, he's, he's a good little filmmaker. So um, Pat basically invested in, in a decent camera and um, was going on the road, interviewed Bob Dean and a few other people, and, and so Hearst said they were interested in doing a show about UFO road trip which was Nancy's title, UFO Road Trip. They said, we're just doing that show. Um, can you come up with a demo? So they did this, like, 30-minute demo. And again, I wasn't in it. And it was simply going to be the three of them, Pat's two friends from high school. It was a funny, it was a great demo. It was really funny. Hearst liked it. They tried to shop it, but nobody wanted it. And then Hearst backed off doing the UFO stuff. And so I went over to this production company where I was doing UFO files and said, what do you think of this? And I showed them the demo. And they said, okay, look. Uh, we're doing a show called Red Alert USOs, and we're going to ask you to be in the show anyway as, as as, as like, one of the guests. Let's do this. Let's come up with this for, for history. And I said they turned it down. And said, yeah, but they turned it down for a whole bunch of reasons, not because of you guys. So why don't you do this? Let's all do it. We're going to take a boat out at, in the Redondo Trench off Santa Monica, off Redondo Beach, and we're going to do a show about Catalina. So you guys come along, and, and do these guys dive? And so I went back to Pat, and yeah, he's a diving instructor, and the other guy, Kevin's a diving instructor, and the other guy, the other – they were all, like, divers, and they were younger athletes. Yeah. So um, we did this show. The single – until Black Box NASA, which was the show that followed it, it was the single highest-rated UFO files they'd ever done. And the History Channel was intrigued by this. Then we did Black Box NASA, which was great, which which was the final episode, by the way. It turned out to be the final episode of UFO Hunters this year. Mm -hmm. But uh, so we did Black Box NASA. UFO, um, so History was intrigued. So they said, could you – and we did a couple of demos. So they gave us an order for a pilot. But – during the ensuing pilot, the other two guys dropped out, and the history said, look, um, have Burns in the pilot. Figure out a way to get him in the pilot. I know he's – so they did, and they didn't like the pilot, but they liked the chemistry among the people that were in it. Yeah. So they hired a showrunner, which was what they do. They, a showrunner basically runs the show.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: He's um, one of the co-execs. And they hired him, and his name is Alan Lagarde, and he's the showrunner on Paranormal State, which was a very big show on A&E. Now it's in its second season, they're shooting it as well. So they hired him, and they basically started up UFO Hunters. And um, the show, like the first night out, really got some tremendous ratings and enough to um, convince them to continue the show for 13 episodes. I mean, they'd ordered 13 episodes, but they couldn't pull the plug in any time. But, yeah, we'll, you'll, uh, we'll keep you on Wednesdays. And the show went through its ups and downs in ratings, but basically wound up on a high note, high enough that they renewed us for a second season, and we are commencing, which begins on History Channel, by the way, in September on Wednesday nights, uh, the second season, season two of UFO Hunters, But um, we begin shooting in two
1: weeks. Nice, nice. All right, now – the the first, like, sort of big question I have about UFO hunters, and I'm going to try and go off the beaten path a little mm-hmm. bit on some of these questions because I know you've probably done just a myriad of uh, media appearances on the show. But uh, for you, on a personal basis, personal perspective here, you've uh, always sort of been behind the camera in a lot of ways, and, and obviously you've done a lot of media in general on UFOs and stuff like that. Like you said, you've been in front of the camera for UFO files. But now the program's in a lot of ways uh, – you're really the focal point of the program. I mean, uh, I watch other shows, and all of a sudden there'll be a commercial, and you're on there. I don't know if you've seen these commercials. Yeah, I've
0: seen the commercial. Yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, it's so great commercial. It's it's great. I get to look tall on the commercial. I love the camera angle on
1: that. Yeah, it's 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 uh, for someone who's been following the esoteric for so long. It's really interesting to, to, and surprising to see someone you know of uh, all of a sudden in that sort of position. Uh, I don't, don't want to say famous, but, you know, uh, featured, I guess, is the better word. So what is it like for you personally to all of a sudden be, you know, a TV personality?
0: It's an experience. I mean, um, it's very funny because um, I've always been a writer, um, and I've produced... Uh, and, and I've written stuff. Um, I worked with Hawk Koch on on the A and E movie Riverman with mm-hmm. Carrie Elwes and Bruce Greenwood, and, and that was a really a great experience. I mean, it's a basic Hollywood. Um, it's I, I wanted to say it's a studio feature, but it's not. It was an independent, but 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 still, it was really exciting to do. I did the When Husbands Cheat for Lifetime, and I've done other stuff, but the thing is, this was, and, and, and I was in a movie with Philippe Moore, the guy who directed Communion all the way back in 1998, where I actually played myself as publisher of UFO Magazine, but that was a mockumentary. So it was it was a feature, and certainly I was credited, but um, it was really a mockumentary. It wasn't like this at all. So this was really the first time that I did um, real heavy work in front of a camera. And um, I was surprised. I was surprised both at the at the activity that goes on in front of a camera. I mean, this was the first time. I mean, I I I was at uh, Columbia University School of the Arts um, in theater. So I mean, I really was in a theater program back back years and years and years and years ago. But the most fun about that program wasn't acting. I mean, because they had to do acting classes because part of the program wasn't acting. It was directing, which I liked. And I got to direct some episodes, and that's the great part about this. Really, the most fun for me was directing some of the, some of the segments on UFO Hunters. But uh, what I liked least when I was in the theater program at Columbia was acting. And um, here, you know, you really do, I mean, you just, let's face it, there is acting going on in front of the camera. Yeah. And um, so... That was interesting. I was, you know, I'm I'm kind of happy that, in a way, I mean, I, I'm very happy that um, they really built a lot of the advertising around me because uh, uh, I'm going to say it because of UFO magazine because um, it's great. I mean, I like opening popular mechanics and then here's a shock there's uh, there's your picture with an ad yeah so um that was fun and being on buses and bus stops in new york city and having your kids say oh my god i'm watching comedy i'm watching the daily show and there's your commercial what's going on here so it so so that part's been fun
1: yeah yeah it must be kind of strange surreal probably is the best way to put it
0: it's surreal and you also can't take it that seriously it literally is here today and gone tomorrow, like, on, like we're on hiatus now, and people tuning at the History Channel at 10 o'clock are going to see the show The Axemen, which is a good show, but if, you're, but if you've got your pizza and your popcorn and you're going to get set for a night of yourself for a little ego boost, it's not there. So, <laughs> yeah. you, really, so you really have to get used to that fact, and, and, uh, and um, <clears throat> so you've got to do that.
1: Yeah. Now you know the big idea in uh, in the UFO world for so long is you know that the media is controlling you know the information that comes out on UFOs and that there's a media cover up. And obviously you know you're in the media now. You're working with uh, the History Channel. How extensive is the sort of input from them? And I- I'm going to guess that it probably hasn't really in any sort of sinister way that uh, people sort of assume.
0: No, it's not sinister. I mean. I was really furious at the way we did Day After Roswell uh, or back years and years ago, mm-hmm. because Day After Roswell, when we did it, they were so interested in presenting the counter view to Corso, and this is where I really, I really didn't want to work with them after this. They were so anxious to present the counter view of Corso that they actually had people on as guests commenting on the book who hadn't read the book. Yeah and i I just and this is by the way, when you say frustrating about day after roswell the most the single most frustrating thing to me is that people commenting who haven't read the book and they'll comment on things that aren't in the book, like for example, the big thing is the commenting on um things Corswell was supposed to have said that he didn't say, and they'll invent things like. For the big thing that I'll get, the biggest criticism that I'll get from people is, Corso said he invented the microchip. He never invented the microchip. He never invented the internet. He's not Al Gore. I mean, there are things that he uh, that he just didn't say that he did. He's saying that supposedly people will tell me, oh, the whole age of the 60s, golden technology was because of Corso. No, he never said that. He never said that we got the transistor from a UFO. He said that Brittain and Shockley were working on a transistor. When they saw that device, and they didn't call it a transistor, And didn't know what the hell to call it. When they saw this thing and they reverse engineered based on a working model of what they were already working on, same with lasers at the At the Army Columbia University lab, same with uh, Kevlar, same with other things, same with night vision. We had night vision in 1960. It was just not a night vision you could stick on your head because it demanded a huge generator. It was only after the folks at Fort Belvoir saw the inner eyelid of the alien and how it collected light that they were able to reverse engineer what was already, what they were already working on to shrink the size of a night vision goggle. So, but it's the people who go out and said, well, the army had night vision at the end of World War II. Who the hell is this Corso guy saying that? Yeah. And he never said it. That's been frustrating. Well, those are the kinds that were in the counter argument to Corso on the Day After Roswell show. And that's what made me mad. I mean, if you're going to criticize the book, read the book. Yeah. Don't criticize because somebody else criticized the book who didn't read the book, and you're just repeating him. I mean, that's the most frustrating thing, and that's what I defend in some ways the most aggressively. Mm-hmm. So that was a case of the media, of of the channel, the network, really putting a counter spin. Well, in this case, um, we'll be dealing with the network a lot. I mean, we'll get our network notes on shows. And they'll say things like, too much burns, burns is over the top, cut them back, reshoot this, replace this with this. So we'll get a lot of that, but it's mainly filmic as opposed to content. Yeah. Where we had one discussion with them was – and I took a lot of heat, especially from Biedney on this, and he was just dead wrong. Uh, we, we took a lot of heat. The thing the network liked most about the show, which we, which we do and we're doing in season two even more, was that in the first show, one of the things we set out was there is a process. So there were two big issues that we really confronted when we came up with the concept for this version of UFO Hunters. The first version was basically going out on the road, interviewing strange people who have seen UFOs. It was kind of like the old Charles Kuralt show from years ago okay. on CBS called On the Road, interviewing great people, or Charles Osgood, interviewing great people, interesting people <clears throat> who have seen strange things. Well, the network said, you know what, done and done. We want to talk about UFOs. So we came up with two things that we wanted to do that were main things. The big thing for us was we have to show the process of doing a UFO investigation on the air. Now you know that you're gonna shoot 100 hours of video for 47 minutes on the air, Mm -hmm. okay? So for most people, this is not what you see is what you get. It's really what you get is mainly what you don't see. Because there're things that were some exciting stuff like the stuff I told you about in Las Vegas with with the army's anti this was an anti gravity platform. Yeah. Right? A neutral buoyancy kind of thing. You never saw that in the first season. Why? For a whole bunch of reasons. It wasn't because we were afraid of the of, of the NSA, but uh it was really kind of a cast thing. But um You just didn't see it. So there's so much you don't see because it just doesn't make it. It's the final cut. You've only got 47 minutes. So that's one thing. The other thing is that there is a process, that the show is not just about jumping to a conclusion. For example, in the R.F. Bentwater show, we could have easily fought over the conclusion for 47 minutes. Charles Holt says this, Vincent Thurkettle says this, let's fight. That took maybe 15 seconds of of TV time. It was the process. It was, you find the issues, and this is kind of what I brought to the show, uh, because this is essentially kind of like a law school thing you learn. It is, you find the issue, right? Mm -hmm. Basically when uh, a judge will say, what is your point, counsel? What is the issue? And the next thing is, what is the rule that should govern how you analyze the issue? So in law school, it's basically so-and-so has a disability, right? And then the, uh, the rule is, that's the issue, is this disability covered under the Disability Act? So the rule is the Americans with Disability Act, where you go to the Act and you find something, or you find the Code of Federal Regulations, or something that governs, the the behavior of the state or a company or or the defendant in this case um, under the law. Then you analyze the facts of that case to that rule of law and come up with a conclusion that would normally say under the rule of blank, Americans with Disability Act, California's Community Property Law, something like that, yes. this is the conclusion. So you don't jump to a conclusion. It's like in elementary school when you were given a, a, a division problem, you had to show the long division
3: yeah, all the, the way work. down
0: the page and you got credit for showing the long division. Even if you're wrong because you didn't carry a one or something, Yeah. you got Credit. Well, that's what the show's about showing the long division. That's what we do. We show the math. So the uh, R.A.F. Ben Border show was what's the key issue? Well, the key issue in the show for me was. What was the nature of the light they saw? What's the dispute? It's either a light from a craft, it's either some hologram that's secret military weapon that's being tested, or it's Orford Ness, the lighthouse. Well, you can't test the secret military weapon because you just don't know, but the lighthouse That you can test. So you go there, you stand there, you go to the lighthouse, you talk to the lighthouse keeper, you go in the lighthouse and you see there's a metal plate that prevents the light from hitting the ground at the angle that the guy said, that Vincent Thurkettle said it hit the ground. Then you go to the place where they saw the object in the field. Mm And with the reflection in the windows, and you and you do your your uh, your GPS waypoints on each position they said they were, then you model it out on a table, and guess what? It could not possibly have been the light a it was a clear night, so there were no low hanging clouds but b the light was in the wrong position. That's the process, okay? Yes. You take the same process, and, and and that was great. That worked for us. That was one of our better shows, and that really worked. People were really thrilled. So you basically get to debunk the debunkers because they, the debunkers said it's the light. Well, you debunked their argument. couldn't be the light. Here's the light. Here's the light in this clearing. Two different lights, two different places. Done. Right? Mm-hmm. So that was the model for every show we did, it's the process. Well, the first show we did was Maury Island. And I had said to the network over and over again Maury Island is a hoax. How do we know it's a hoax? What's the one piece of evidence? It's not just that you can't find the slag. Remember Morty Island, Harold Dahl saw some objects, dropped something, it hit his boat, it damaged his boat, killed his dog, hit his son, and then Ray Palmer, uh, then his boss Fred Crisman said, Whoa! This is great stuff! This is from a UFO! Well, Fred Crisman and Ray Palmer were trying to do a Ray Palmer started Fate Magazine. Fred Crispin was trying to do a book with Ray Palmer and was basically trying – and Fred Crispin was a real piece of work. He had worked in the, he was an intelligence guy and a real wannabe, wound up as one of the people they talked about on the grassy knoll in 63. Mm-hmm. So he had a long history of kind of like counter, counter, counter. Yeah. Uh, so um, <clears throat> he and Ray Palmer wanted to get together. So since Ray Palmer was doing a book with Kenneth Arnold, Crispin got Kenneth Arnold and this whole thing evolved. Yeah. Well. The key issue was, what can you test besides the slag? And you're not going to, I mean, if there was a UFO that dropped out of the sky, you better believe that's long since gone. <laughs> yeah. they, they picked that site clean all the way back in 47. Mm-hmm. So, what you can test, though, is are there any records of the stupid boat that was supposed to have been damaged by the UFO slag? Yes, there were. Kenneth Arnold found the records. Kenneth Arnold found the records, and when he inspected the boat, found there was a paint job with the work records, the dock records, from six months earlier showing the paint job, and no new damage to the paint job. That about closes the case for me, Mm -hmm. right? So the forensic evidence and documentary evidence shows it was a hoax. Well, then you know that Fred Chrisman basically confessed to the fact that it was a hoax. And Harold Dahl confessed to the FBI that it was a hoax. Well, so you now I arguments from three sides. One, were people screaming at me that I kind of was conclusory, when I, but the network didn't want me to come out and say it's a hoax right away. So they said, we'll build it into the show, but let's keep the mystery alive. Fine, as long as you say that there are arguments that it's a hoax, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. Yeah. And that's what we do. Well... But the, what the show was about was not to prove that it was a hoax, it was about the process of finding out what facts are in a case. It's the process. So for people screaming, and again, one of them is David Biedney screaming, why did we do Morning Island it was a hoax? Just say it's a hoax and it's over. That's the conclusory argument. That's the point that I'm trying to argue against in the blogs for the UFO Magazine site. You don't become conclusory because if you become conclusory. You basically cut out all the math that you need to show. Maury Island showed the math. Yeah. That was the point of the show. Is it a hoax? Well, here's how you determine what's a hoax and what's not a hoax. And it's the same thing with a few other shows that we talked about, which there there was information that wasn't true, not that it was a hoax. That In that case, it was Fred Crispin coming up with a hoax but because um, the records show that. But it's the math of that, okay? Why did the – plane why did the b-25 mitchell bomber catch fire over kelso was it because of it was this like um like the repo man movie where the roswell debris catches the car on fire no it's that it's that um frank brown who was the co-pilot put heavily magnetic very heavily ferrous slag from the smelter across the way from the island in tacoma Um, next to one of the junction boxes that was a key junction box. And when you read the crash reports from the two tech sergeants who jumped out of the plane before it hit, they tell you, oh, there was a fire in the junction box in the Bombay doors. Well, Bombay is where they probably stored the box. It was a Kellogg's Cornflakes box of slag. So we modeled what would have happened. We took heavily ferrous material. Actually, some of the slag was in there from, from Kelso right, mm-hmm. put that next to a junction box that we built in the lab with John Tyndall. sure enough, it tripped the junction box. So it shorted out the junction box, the current overloaded, and you had the basis of a fire. And since there was thermite on the plane, the aluminum caught fire, caught the left wing on fire, and they couldn't, and they couldn't put the fire out with the fire extinguishers from the cockpit, and they couldn't jump in time, and the plane hit.
1: All right. Now, you say that you didn't really want to do the Maury thing, but the, the channel kind of wanted you to. What's the process of deciding what cases and what areas to investigate? Who makes those decisions?
0: Basically, we've got a production team, um, senior producers and and segment producers, and I will write episodes with them, at least for the first season. I'm not doing it in the second season so far, but in the first season, we all wrote episodes together. This would have been in July of 2007. And we basically wrote them up and outlined them, and then we submitted them to the network. And my point of Maury Island was – What I liked most about it was to trace the Fred Christman character from a UFO incident to the Grassy Knoll. I mean, that was my thing, right? Network said, no, no, it's too talky. So although I went along with the Maury Island, because it was exciting. See, what I liked about it was that it was a very visual episode. You go to Maury Island. You collect slag on the beach. You go to Kelso, Right. And there at Kelso, you examine the plain site that really hadn't been examined, except it was pilfered by people. Mm-hmm. But, um, you, but you go to this site, basically, it's owned by Weyerhaeuser paper. Um, it's a real desolate little site.' got to ford rivers and, you know, go through kind of like quicksand mud. But this is all great visual stuff. And that I liked. And I said, fine, let's do that. That's great. That's a really fun episode to do, going back to 1947. And you get to trace the very beginnings of it. Again, it's history, and you want History Channel doing history. You get to trace the very beginnings of the UFO stories in the U.S. So remember, Maury Island takes place days before the Kenneth Arnold sighting and nothing happens with the Maury Island story until after the Kenneth Arnold sighting hits the news. Then suddenly, that's when Fred Crisman gets the idea in his brain, whoa. See, nobody's saying that Harold Dahl didn't see anything. Because the guy was a very confused guy and he was probably drunk. (laughs) <laughs> but um it's true. I yeah, mean, because his you. wife was screaming at him in front of the FBI agent who visited him. You've got to stop your drinking. And then she went after him with a knife. I mean, it's it's just a fa- see. That's what I love most about UFO stories. It's it's that's the it's the people involved exactly. So whether it's a hoax or not, believe it or not, it's sometimes secondary to how the UFO story, impacts on
1: people's lives. Totally. Some people just don't get that. They don't
0: get that, and I, it, 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 it bothers me. But anyway, so, um, th- I love that part. Well, that part got diminished in, in in how the episode came together, but again, we shot 25 hours to 45 hours of footage to get down to 47 minutes. So, I mean, um, and, and, and and I'll tell you something, the ratings were so high for that show, people loved it. So, you know, if if so, had I not done it, I would have had made a mistake.
1: Exactly. Since we're kind of talking in the same vein, let me just jump in a few points ahead. And I guess that's—I call them the anal critics in ufology—that they just they—they they can never seem to be satisfied. Um, you know, we we got a great show going here, UFO hunters. It's good for ufology in the long run and in the short term. But you know, they have that sort of weird argument that it's not real ufology. I don't understand what that is exactly. So I can't, I can't make that argument for them, but. I guess, what's your response to that sort of critique well, of the show? Well,
0: I mean, I have two responses, uh, basically, to that. I mean, I get it. It's not real ufology. I understand that. My two responses are first of all, the show was not meant, was never aimed at the UFO ufology audience. Yeah. I mean, I mean,. All seven people do not make a show.
3: <laughs> exactly.
0: It's it's aimed at a television audience. Mm-hmm. So if it's aimed at a television audience, I mean it's not dramatic. It's aimed at a television audience, and it's, if it's at a television audience, then you're going to try and get the broadest possible scope. Uh, you're, uh, you're not going to restrict the show to uh, the small – it's not their show. They don't own it you know it's a history channel it's a commercial television you know maybe cable but it's still commercial television yeah. i mean what don't you understand about commercial television just like the book the day after roswell was not aimed at the ufology group it wasn't aimed at the ufo market it was aimed at a general reading trade commercial market i mean because people who do things um in the media don't aim them at small interest groups yeah OK, that's why they're a podcast. That's why there's more. I mean, that's the reason for it. So that's first. Second, when they say it's not a ufology show, it doesn't it doesn't follow you. Ufo- there is no ufology. I mean, that, you know, that's really yeah. my argument. I'll say it over and over again. There just is no ufology. So how can there be ufology standards? I mean, each ufologist has its own standards. Mm-hmm. Ask one ufologist. It's all about the evidence, the smoking gun, the physical evidence. Ask another one that's about the photographs. It's the photographs that are all debunked anyway. You're all debunked. No photographs are real. I mean, Believe me, I've heard that a lot. Ask somebody else, and, and you can get two experts, right? Put Jim Dilatoso and Bruce McAbee in the same room. They all have disagreements over photos, mm-hmm. right? So 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 there's that. Then you've got the, uh, the documentarians. I come down more heavily on the side of the documentarians that it's in the documents themselves you're going to see stuff. But it's not because I'm a – it's not because I believe that's most important, it's that my academic training, which was in medieval literature and medieval history that ac- and and law that academic training leans heavily towards documents being some kind of representation of the truth because you find stuff in there that's important so, so 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 that's where I tend to lean down then there's the witnesses and i Again, I, I like witnesses. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm pretty good at at being able to see, if you look at the story of how a witness's story changes, you can tell if that person is fabricating, confabulating, um, or just remembering new details. So um, although I'm not a, an, an an expert there, I tend to rely on that a lot. So <clears throat> that's why when you go back to the story of RAF Benwaters, I tend to rely on the witness testimony of Charles Halt and Jim Penniston, not so much on Vincent Thurkettle, because Vincent Thurkettle is after the fact. The most important thing Vincent Thurkettle testified to me about, or to Pat Uskert in this case, was that he was visited by people from the British, um, by some kind of British unit, some kind of British official British thing, called them British Men in Black, BMIB, even before Charles Holt wrote the report on the incident to um, his own commanding officer. Uh So – and then you say, oh, is it a big – I mean, is it a big conspiracy? This is something. It's a big conspiracy. Ooh, And then you say, well, maybe, but maybe the real story is that why were American service personnel possibly armed in the woods off the base on sovereign British territory in a royal forest that night? Yeah, And that would be a police matter, regardless of the UFO. Mm-hmm. So the point is, we're into the general market, not the ufology market, and two, there's no ufology. There, there really isn't. Because yeah. each ufologist, which is, by the way, a self-described term, and anybody can be a ufologist. You, can, you don't even have to go to the matchbook ads <laughs> yeah. or the back of the comic books. You can be a ufologist. I'm a ufologist. I've studied for 15 years. Fine. Have a nice day, you're a ufologist. I'm not going to dispute you, but there are no standards. Who sets the standards? God help us. If if you've got the small group like the Taliban setting the religious standards for what constitutes a UFO story, well, you can't be in the field. We we drum you out of the field. Fine. So I so I don't sit at your lunch table. Yeah. I mean that's really what it is. It's the stupidest thing in the world. So that's why I take that criticism with a grain of salt because there is no ufology.
1: Yeah, it's disappointing. Uh, You know, I don't understand. It's, It's just sort of seems like, like I said, it seems like some people just can't be satisfied. You know what I mean? They just can't be satisfied with anything. Uh, and I think also there's a tinge of jealousy going on there as well uh, with the success of UFO hunters. that people in the UFO field, you know, it's the same kind of with the ghost thing, with the ghost hunting show. You mm-hmm. know, and so the little mini ghost hunting groups think that, you know, that they want to be the taps people or something. It's like, oh, get over it. Now, after the show is taped and everything, how much input do you have after that? Or do you just sort of go out on the scene and tape the show and then you, you know, then you wait to see it on TV? Or I'm sure no, you have no, some No, pres- No, no.
0: Uh, what then happens is, first of all, when the videos come back, they're logged. So if anybody knows anything about video editing, when you're doing any kind of a shoot, whether it's a feature film, TV, reality show, doesn't matter. When you're doing filming uh, and you're on location, and this show is shot on location. Um, some of it's shot, shot in a studio, most of it's on location. When you're doing that, you have to log the tapes. Let's so so we will use um, one of the big, um, I guess, the Vericam 900 Vericam. Uh, and because um, it's HD and so you'll have 30 minute tapes and so you can imagine just scores of 30 minute tapes Yeah. Um, each tape has to be logged and so what you and each scene has to be logged so somebody is there There, uh, there's a continuity uh, production assistant there or the executive producer or the site coordinator <clears throat> will take the job of logging each scene so at a certain um, you will get basically the uh the numbers on the tape the time code. So at a certain time code you will log what scene you're starting and then for the next scene what the time code is. So there's a continuity in a log what's there. Then when the um, tapes come back, one of the first things that happens is the an assistant editor will take the tapes into an editing bay and begin logging the tapes in so we can can account for every single tape that's shot. Mm -hmm. And they will put the time codes on there and make sure that the time codes on the tape um, are the same time codes in the production notes or else whoever took the notes has to answer for why there's a difference. Once that's done, there are various cuts. There's a very rough cut and then finer cuts and then at at each point, um, usually I'm going to be the one that's asked Does this make sense? What are you saying here? What is Pat saying here? Because you'll have somebody at that point trying to do a continuity, and that's normally a story producer, doing the continuity out of the various tapes because they're they're all shot out of sequence anyway. So um, they'll be doing continuity, and then a lot of times the continuity editor is going to come back and say, we need you or Pat or Ted or somebody to do um, what's known as um, either an intro or an outro, or you'll have to cover a scene. Yeah. And that's called coverage, and you'll have to cover a scene by doing another shot. Maybe the shot's gonna be 15 seconds on the air in which you basically do a segue or an explanation. Mm -hmm. So we'll do that. Then a rough cut goes to the network, and the network comes back with its notes and the notes are going to be scene-by-scene scene notes, and then you'll re-edit according to those notes. So the network's going to say, get Bill to do this, get Pat to do this, get Ted to do this, and they will do that, and then we'll basically reshoot certain scenes. And, that's, and then you'll get to a, um, a close-to-final cut. Network will give you final notes. They will uh, Then they'll do the master tape, and the master tape physically goes to the network probably 48 hours before air.
1: There you go. All right. That makes sense. Now, I, I don't want to—I uh, don't want to put you in a position of telling tales out of school here. But the big story when the show first premiered, of course, was the name battle with the other UFO hunters. Um, what happened with that whole thing, and, and whatever you can tell us that you feel comfortable talking about?
0: Oh, it's—it's it's really not a matter of I feel comfortable with. I mean, like, I can tell you straight out that uh, that. Um once you work for a network, you can only say certain kinds of things and not other things. And so, um, I mean, not about UFOs, but about business. Yeah. So, really, um, the standard thing that, um, I said in all kinds of publicity is really what sci fi and the uh, Pilgrim Productions decided to call their show is really none of our business. You know, they want to use the name UFO Hunters. I mean, as far as I'm concerned for this show, that is kind of above my pay grade. Yeah. Uh, it's up to other people to determine. So um, I generally don't comment on that. All I can tell you is that there is a room somewhere, which is a really big room. Mm -hmm. And in that room, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on with the trademark office among various people. I'm not involved in it, although I may know a lot about it, although I may have my own opinions. Generally speaking, it's not something I I have to do anything with. Yet, Although I may in the future, but not right now. So I tend to avoid that simply because um, I don't know anything about Pilgrim Productions. I don't know anything about the Ghost Hunters guys. I mean, you could actually figure out on your own. You don't need a backstory to figure out on your own that on the one hand, the History Channel had a UFO Hunter show on in 2005. Okay. Okay? On the other hand, Ghost Hunters had a show on in the year – I don't know when, but they had a Ghost hunter show. So, I mean, literally, you don't need me to kind of figure out what happened, okay? Um, and so I'll just leave it at that since I'm just not involved with Ghost Hunters at all, um, and I don't know the folks. And um, basically, uh, the name UFO Hunters is not something that um, they came to me for. So – it's up to them. They'll work out whatever they need to work out and um there you go.
1: All right, there you go. I can respect that. No problem. I don't you know, hey, whatever. <laughs> I had to ask though, you know what I mean? It's uh that was sort of like the big buzz, I guess, for a while but there. Anybody
0: who's here. an internet guru who wants to do his own research or her own research, go to the US Patent and Trademark Office, USPTO.gov, click on the trademark office. Click on what's known as the uh, name search, trademark search, T-E-A-S search. Um, click on UFO hunt, uh, Right, Type in UFO Hunters. You'll get all the trademarks that have ever been applied for, right?
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: spend a happy afternoon reading all the documents, and you will know after all that's done exactly what everybody else knows from all the lawyers.
1: There you go. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 3. Big, big thanks, of course, to Bill Burns for coming on the show. We're going to pick up the conversation next week, right where we left off. I'll have a preview for that in just a little bit. Until then, definitely you want to check out Bill Burns' website, www.ufomag.com, ufomag.com, fantastic website, awesome blog there, featuring a lot of insight from a variety of different voices in the paranormal and esoteric world. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback, and this week's letter was rather thematic for the episode you just heard. It comes from a man by the name of John, no hometown listed. Here's what John has to say. Just wanted to thank you for your outstanding audio programs. First rate. I know someone has said it before, but you ask the pertinent questions and let your guests what's the word? Speak. So many hosts I've listened to, and believe me, I've listened to quite a few, have their own agenda and tend to cut off the guests in mid-sentence. It does a disservice to them and the listeners. Anyway, thank you again for bringing a wide variety of intelligent topics to the Internet and to the world at large. Sincerely, John. There you go. A little pat on the back, I guess you could say, from John. I appreciate that. Thanks for the dap, John. And as I said... Thematically chosen this week's letter for this episode. Bill Burns, fantastic guest, someone who works so well within the confines of the BOA audio interview style. Sometimes when I do an interview, I wonder maybe I'm not saying enough, but then I go back and listen to the show when I edit it, and I'm pleasantly surprised by just how rich the answers are from the guests, and how you just don't need me to jump in and make some kind of comment. We've already heard the people who write in and say, don't say yeah, but I'd rather say just simply yeah, than jump in with a four or five sentence, 30 second diatribe to try and push some kind of agenda of my own. Yes, there are times when I share my opinion on subjects, but I do that within the framework of the question and then simply let the guest answer. Perhaps I'll respond to their answer, but I'm not going to be jumping in the middle of an answer to argue with or affirm one of the guests' responses. That's what we're all about here on BOA Audio, my friends. We're a showcase for the guests, and that's the style of program that we are. Thankfully, the listeners like John and many of you out there appreciate that style and keep coming back for more BOA Audio. If you'd like to be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback, there's three ways to do it. A, go to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button. B, simply write to audio at hotmail.com. Or C, join the official Banal of America forum at www.theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. The official forum of BOA. Lots of esoteric and non-esoteric discussion. Amongst a wide variety of folks and a great group of people, definitely want to check out the US of E if you're a fan of message boards and forums. Regardless of how you do it, those three methods will put you in touch with me and get your correspondence into my hands and potentially featured on a future edition of BOA Audio listener feedback. Up next, you know this part of the show, my friends, it is the thanks segment of the program. Let me run down the list of the outstanding BOA staff Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, and Richard Thomas from Wales. Unbeknownst to many people, they don't just write the columns out in all of America. They provide tremendous insight into what kind of guests we should have, post show opinions on certain episodes, and a variety of other means of supporting the BOA franchise. Been All of America would be nothing without its fantastic staff, and that's why we thank them every week here at the end of the program. As we say also at the end of the program every week, if you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at binallofamerica.com, you're only getting half the story. Definitely you want to make BOA a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. You just finished listening to episode number 27 of season 3 we got four more shows left for you folks, but now, of course, is the time in the program when I ask you for donations. We rely on your donations to keep the BOA machine up and running and freely available to all of our great listeners and readers the world over. How do you help us out? That's simple. You go to com, click the PayPal button in the middle of the screen. That'll bring you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the donation process. No donation is too small. And all donations go towards BOA and BOA Audio. Next week on the program, not much mystery to who the guest will be. Of course, it will be Bill Burns, part two. We're going to be talking about pretty much ufology as a whole. We're going to find out if Bill ever gets burned out on UFOs, his theories on what is behind the phenomena, and how much the government really knows about flying saucers, plus his thoughts on the disclosure movement and exopolitics. We're also going to talk about the present online esoteric scene, notably the emergence of the podcast genre, and the sticky issue of people acting as gatekeepers in ufology. We're also going to talk about the staple BOA audio issues, like women in ufology and young people in ufology. Trust me, folks, this is an ultra-hot edition of BOA audio. It's going to generate much discussion in the online esoteric world. It's pretty much no-holds-barred with Bill Burns as we talk about the world of ufology from a plethora of angles. I don't have much left to say, folks, so we're going to close it out on that. Hope you have an excellent week, my friends. Until you hear from me next week, this is Tim Banal, thanking you for listening and signing off.